I wanted to bring my experience of Black culture onto the stage. This sort of bigger, larger than life, but like deeply, deeply thoughtful, deeply, deeply soulful, deeply, deeply wise experience. That's James Imes, who just may be the playwright of the moment. He recently had five plays running in four different cities. And Imes also recently made his Broadway debut with Fat Ham, a reimagined Hamlet in which he staged the famous Shakespearean tragedy as a comedy, complete with a barbecue, drag, and an all-black cast. Fat Ham earned five Tony nominations and a Pulitzer Prize in 2022 and propelled Imes into the vanguard of American playwrights. I'm Charlotte Alter, senior correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. I spoke with Imes earlier this spring, before Fat Ham's final performance on Broadway on July 2nd. We talked about everything from our shared love of theater, to Imes' experience growing up in the South, to how his work explores 21st century masculinity. And we talked a lot about how witnessing live performance can be a way to process shared experiences, and how your future doesn't have to be determined by the ghosts of your past. Can you tell me a little bit why you chose Hamlet? Why Hamlet? Why was that the vehicle to say some of the things you clearly wanted to say about inherited trauma and families? Hmm. I did a student-directed production of Hamlet in college. They had a directing class and a student did Hamlet. And they cast me as Hamlet in it. And it was the first time I'd read it. And I thought it was a fabulous story. I thought it was a fabulous, tragic story. I identified with him, sort of his conflictedness, his ambivalence. I identified with him feeling a little bit like an outsider because around the same time I was figuring out that I was uh, gay and (laughs) there was something kindred about Hamlet and me and my journey at that moment. But I just kept coming back to the play over and over again. I just thought about it a lot. And then maybe about five or six years ago, I just started reading it again on one level because I was like, oh, maybe I can find someone who will let me direct it or let me be in it. But then I started to think about these like storylines that are sort of underneath the surface of the play. Like there's Fortin Bras. Very early in the play, they're talking about Fortin Bras is coming. He's angry. I was like, what is he? What's the deal? What I realized is that, oh, Hamlet's father did something awful to Fortin Braz's father. And now Fortin Braz is coming to this kingdom because he's heard that the king is dead and he's going to try to get revenge. And Hamlet is now in this situation where his ghost of his father, the past again, has come back and said, I want you to you know, enact revenge on your uncle because he killed me. And it started making me think about the things that we inherit from our families, the things we inherit from society, that we don't really have a whole lot of control over our possession of them or that they are things that we have inherited. But we can um, make some decisions about how we want to interact with that and what we want to do with it and whether or not we want to keep it or not. Just because someone gives you something doesn't mean you have to hold on to it. And that felt like a really great vehicle to talk about my own relationship with um, masculinity, Hmm. specifically what 
kinds of masculinity and modes of masculinity people have access to. And when I say people, I mean everyone. Hmm. Um, in this play, you have an Ophelia-type character, Opal, who is also grappling with where she sits in that. All of the young people are sort of figuring out where they sit in relationship to that hmm. idea of masculinity. And they're all sort of like pushing against the necessity of it being so central. Yeah, there's a deep ambivalence Mm -hmm. in all of the characters around this central idea. Yeah. And I really feel like our society is questioning that masculinity and what it is to be a man so much right now. And I'm wondering what you think about that. I mean, if you're told your whole life, you're sort of handed this like cast iron shape. Hmm. And your whole life, I'm like, that's manhood. That's what a man looks like. That's like a super static thing. Hmm. And... I got handed one of those, you know. Yeah. And no, it's not malevolent. It's just what happens. And then when you get in, you go, I don't fit into this. This isn't work for me. What do you do? You know, mm. and sometimes it can create in people a will to break the cast iron. So mm. you got somebody like me who like <laughs> says, well, I'm not going to do any of those things or I'll take from that what I want and I'll leave what I don't want, you know. But I think for some people— it creates this this conflict in them where they feel like they have to like force themselves into this shape. Hmm. And then they start doing damage to themselves. You know, I weep for the amount of anger I feel among other men. And I, I mourn the fact that men are not allowed to be affectionate, that hmm. men are not allowed to be tender with each other, that those values are always attached to or in the process towards being um, intimate with someone Hmm. as opposed to hugs just help. Right. (laughs) Holding someone's hand is an act of love. Kissing someone is is about trying to communicate because our words can only do so much. Mm -hmm. Communicating to someone um, how deeply you feel. And you know, so many modes of masculinity, that is not something that you're allowed to have access to. If we go as further away from that, just like the way people dress, the behavior that people are allowed. You know, I remember growing up and I would cross my legs, like knee over knee. And the men in my family, they're great. Hi, y'all. I love you. You're <laughs> awesome. By the time they would like, don't do that. Because they were operating from, you know, their idea of what they had gotten of, like, what men do. And I kept thinking, what's the big deal? It's comfortable. I kind of like the way I look when I do it. <laughs> like, it. It robbed me of my ability to explore what that meant for me. Or And it's like this simple, stupid thing about, like, how your legs lay when you're sitting. Hmm. Like, why is that a thing that anybody should care about? <laughs> it's yeah. literally, like, what feels comfortable? Like, now I'm probably more comfortable sitting on the floor, you know, with my legs crossed. But, you know, at that time, it I felt like it offered me sophistication in this small town that I was growing up in. Oh, I, I can look like, you know, this woman I saw on TV. She looks so sophisticated and interesting to yeah. me. And it wasn't about, like, um, my gender. It wasn't about my sexuality. It was just about, like, that confidence. I want to feel that. And it seems like there might be something about that confidence in this gesture. And so that has like really shaped how I've deconstructed my own relationship to what masculinity is. 
Um, I want to ask you about what it was like to fully reimagine Hamlet in a Black family, in a Black community, because obviously uh, that is not something that has been done before at this scale, mm-hmm. you know, in a Pulitzer Prize-winning play on Broadway. What was that like? I think the scale of Shakespeare and sort of the Elizabethan theater period graphs onto Black American culture um, pretty pretty nicely. You know, the sort of beauty of the language of Hamlet, the reliance on that in the Elizabethan era, it's, it's a... It's a a visceral world of watching a play. It's not people sitting in seats and very manicured and very quiet. It's like, if I don't like this, I'm throwing tomatoes. So there's this like energy of um, of the possibility of anything happening. Hmm. And keeping that in mind and writing this play, which is about Black people in the South, who, at least in my family and the community I grew up in, incredibly expressive. You know, my grandmother can't tell a story without enacting the voice of the person that she's talking to. <laughs> so she'll say something like, you know, and then I say, well, I don't know why you're saying that, Helen. And then she'll go, well, Helen will say, well, when I was at the store, she like has to go into <laughs> the attitude, the voice. The, it's a one-woman show. Yeah. And I wanted to bring my experience of Black culture onto the stage, this Mm. sort of bigger, larger than life, but like deeply, deeply thoughtful, deeply, deeply soulful, deeply, deeply wise experience. So I just want to back up for a second. So you grew up in North Carolina. Yeah. Tell me about your family and tell me about how you first started writing and Mm. putting on plays. I grew up in a really big family uh, in Bessemer City, North Carolina, which is... Bessemer City is about 30 minutes outside of Charlotte. So I, okay. I grew up close to a pretty pretty large city. I, I think it's like 15th or 16th largest city or something. You know, I didn't grow up in the sticks. But where we grew up was pretty rural. Small town and close-knit. Like, I probably, growing up, saw my grandmother and great-grandmother until she passed away every day of my life. Wow. I had aunts and uncles that I was incredibly close to and cousins that I was very close to. There was always this sense of just like the spectacle of family around. It wasn't Mm -hmm. something that we experienced on like holidays or special occasions. Like I just had this really beautiful extended family experience. Like I think about me growing up and my mom was amazing. I had a have. My mother is very much alive and well and wonderful and an amazing mom. She was an educator. And I remember in school, they would say, he is talkative. <laughs> he talks too much. <laughs> it's the thing that like boys weren't really supposed to do. It's like, I was always talking to the girls because they were fun. And he daydreams. And my mother was like, well, what's wrong with that? There's nothing inherently wrong with those things. Is his work good? His grades are good. Why is this being reported to me? Hmm. And um, this is something I didn't know that she did until I was an adult. And I think what I appreciate about that is that she never made me feel like those things about myself were things that I needed to scrub out. Hmm. Which allowed me to sort of explore and go, okay, well, what what does feel good? You know, I'm I'm really fortunate that I had a mother and a family, really, that was really curious about the world. My aunt always says, youth is the space in which failure is inevitable. Like, you're supposed to Hmm. mess up when you're a youth. (laughs) 
And I have always kept that. And I think it started for me because I had a mom that would observe what I was doing and go, I'm not going to bother that because that's probably going to become something really awesome one day. And she came to see the show opening night of Broadway. And she was like, I'm so glad that I let you daydream because I'm like, look at this, you know, it's taken a long time, but like, you know, my, I've made my career out of pretending. I have two sisters um, and we played together and I loved that feeling of like intrepid kids, <laughs> absolutely feral in the wild of North mm-hmm. Carolina, just playing outdoors and pretending. And there was this moment where that started to just sort of get drained out of us, where I kind of was like made to feel like you should stop playing outside and pretending. You need to like, hmm. the world is real. I struggled with that. Like, I wanted to be able to pretend. And I somehow have been lucky enough to find a way to <laughs> get people to pay me to play all day. <laughs> and I love it. I, you know, yeah. a play is fully integrated mm-hmm. into my everyday life experience. So you've said your mom was an educator and encouraged you to daydream. When did you develop this love of theater and what encouraged you to get there? I grew up in a family that really valued art. You know, my mother made sure that we saw great movies and uh, there was always music in the house. We saw museums, we saw theater, although there was slightly less accessible to me. I saw a lot of theater on TV. They used to play plays on Bravo and A&E. Hmm. used to have plays and PBS. Now, wow. None of this happens anymore. PBS does like broadcast of plays, but right. I went to high school and studied uh, choral music. I thought I was going to be a choral music teacher. Huh. I started college as a, a vocal performance and conducting major and very quickly realized that music theory was not for me. And so I... Yeah, sounds boring. <laughs> it wasn't boring. It just was math. Yeah. And I was like... <laughs> Uninterested. Yeah. Um, And my voice teacher, who I always give so much credit to, told me, he was like, there's a musical that they're doing. You should audition. And I did. And I got in. And that was sort of Once on this Island. And I played Agwe, which is when I got the part, I was like, yay. And then I was like looking at the music. I was like, this is a really hard song. (laughs) But I got bit by the bug there. I started writing plays when I was about 14 or 15, but that was like as a hobby. How did the experience of writing plays as a teen turn into a career? I never thought of it as really as a career until about 15 years ago when I Mm. really started to send things out and say, okay, I want to see what other people think about this. For me, it was a way to metabolize how I was feeling. I grew up working class and I had like anxiety and maybe a little depression when I was a kid and didn't have access to therapy. And so like so many working class and poor people of color, black people in particular, we find ways to like take care of ourselves. And one of the things that I did was that I wrote, I would be upset about something and I would have someone like my grandmother say, write it down, mm-hmm. put it down on paper, then it's out of you. Mm. I was a very angry preteen. I was a very despondent and depressed teenager. And I was a very anxious yet ambitious college student. And through all of those things, I wrote poetry. I wrote plays, short fiction. I wrote to get those 
feelings down so that they could be a thing that I could look at and then I could manage them. Hmm. And then when I started to go to therapy and talk to a therapist and I would describe that to them, they would go, oh, well, yeah, that's what I probably would have told you to do when you were like 10. I say sometimes that I, um, that I wrote myself out of Bessemer City because it's mm. just, I kept writing what the dream was. And what was the dream? To be somewhere where I could just be myself. Still with my family, still surrounded by love, but to be in a place where I could just be who I was. And I think I was, I was knowledgeable about who that person was my whole life. It's just taken me longer to, to feel free enough to be that. Coming up, James Imes and I talk about our mutual love of musicals, the power of a live audience, and why he doesn't write tragic plays. More in a minute. And so now looking back, you know, now that you have built a career as a playwright, I'm curious if you look back on your childhood and your early adolescence and adulthood, if there are things that happened, whether in your family or in the world, that you now are like, oh, that's showing up in my plays. Oh, my God. So many things. Yeah. Um, hmm. When I was studying choral music in, in middle school and high school, I had great choral music teachers um, and took us to go see opera a lot. Hmm. And usually it was just like concert versions, but like the scale of the emotion on the text has always stayed with me. Hmm. And thinking about language as sound as opposed to meaning like, of course, the things have to make sense. Like, the line has to make sense. But you can choose whatever words to say the thing. What is the word hmm. that is going to make the line feel like the actor is singing, even if they're not? So, like, an example for me is, like, um, Rev has this moment where he says, you're bringing down the optimism. And Rev functions as a, a kind of, like in the script, I say, a kind of Claudius. Hmm. You could say you're, you're bringing down the mood. Yeah. But there's something interesting about choosing a word that is both unexpected, but has a musicality to it, has more syllables. Right. It, it's going to make the actor vocally have to find curiosity in the way that they say it, because it can't just be flat. It can't just mm -hmm. be straight. I recently saw Sweeney Todd, and every time they started singing, I was like, it's happening. It just— <laughs> I know. I love it, too. It's like a thrill. It's a, it is this like slow switch that happens. Mm. And I, that seems so simple. That seems so like, yeah, that's what they do in musicals. But like, I have never tired of speech giving way to song. Mm. I think it is one of the truest and most ancient ways that we collectively tell a story. We didn't just didn't always call them musicals. Hmm. You know, I think if you go really, really far back to, like, the mix of, like, religious speaking and singing and movement, it's, you know, if you go to a black church on any Sunday, the mixing of those things in real time, if you've ever seen a Baptist preacher who can really preach and also can sing, 
Yeah. And the way that that person moves through singing and speaking and then moving through the space, I just think it's more natural to us than we believe. Like you're driving in your car and you're yelling at someone that's cut you off, but your favorite song just came on and then you start singing. Like, yeah. We inherently do this all the time, mm-hmm. but we don't see ourselves in what happens on the stage because it's manicured and it is directed and it is designed. My mind is blown by what you just said. I think that's so true. I think so much more is connected than we want to believe. Yeah. And it's so frustrating to me because I think we'd be in a lot better place if we were able to see the commonalities. Mm-hmm. If our, you know, our instinct as humans um, was to see the commonality in things as opposed to the difference in things. So, um, Broadway is an overwhelmingly white space. There's a recent report that says that over half of roles on stage are played by white actors. Over 90% of producers are white, as are 100% of general managers. So what has it been like for you to show up in some of these very white institutions and carve out your own space? I don't know that I have. You know, I think I am still very much hoping that people remember who I am when I walk into a room, which I'm on some level kind of happy about. I, I, I like sort of being able to sort of move through a space and people don't really know that I'm there. I'm less concerned about me. I'm much more concerned about collectively writers of color and cultural production made by people of color. It's this like huge burst of enthusiasm Hmm. initially. And then over time, it's like, oh, okay, I can forget that that is important. Um, And we struggle. We struggle in those home stretches. We struggle to make it to the finish line because the excitement at the beginning of these productions, and I, I can point to n- numerous productions where that has been the case, where it's been critically acclaimed, it's been praised by many, many people, and yet it's like you walk in a theater and there's, you know, maybe a third of the theater that's empty. Mm. That is the thing that I feel the strongest and want us to fix, and I think that is the thing that we have to carve out space for that. And I think a part of that is treating these stories not as novelty, not as I'm checking the box. This is the Black play I'm seeing. This is the Asian play that I'm seeing. This is the play about people with disabilities. This is the queer play I'm seeing. And I'm in this tricky place because I think people are double checking with my play. Oh, it's gay (laughs) and Black. Done. (laughs) I don't need to go see a gay play this season. And so I'm hoping that... um, that is the thing that we can sort of reframe how we think about it. That like, it's it's not about like seeing the thing that you know or makes you comfortable or has a movie star in it. Or it's about going to see everything because mm. the health of the very industry is based on a wise, thoughtful, energetic theater goership, and that it's not merit badges. Right. And then the flip side of that is like, well, how accessible are these things to people? Right. How accessible are these ticket prices? How are the things we're making in the theater more interesting than what you can see on your TV screen at home? You know, people have been predicting the death of theater for oh, it's too old. years it's too or old. centuries. It's never going to die, Yeah, obviously. Yeah. But it does occupy 
a pretty unique space in this moment where there's so much on TV. Mm-hmm. A lot of the things that theater offers mm-hmm. are accessible in other ways. Yeah, You could open up your TikTok and see people dancing and singing or having, you know, drama. And so what is the role of live theater in this moment when there are so many other things competing for our attention? I think live things, theater inclusive, reinforce the notion that we're not by ourselves and that we're not alone. Hmm. And so much of our culture is trying to condition us to think that we are individuals and we do not have support systems. That collectivity is dangerous to the project. (laughs) You know, my phone has buzzed several times since I've been sitting in this seat. And I know that there's probably someone that's annoyed that I haven't responded yet because I'm supposed to always be here. Because me as the individual is all that's supposed to matter. But I think where we have seen the world change is collective movements with many people. And if you're conditioning a society to think, take care of yourself, what's going to make you feel good? What's important to you? Don't think about what's good for someone else. You know, I think that's a part of the reason why we're in the mess we're in. So how does theater play into that? You have to sit in a room with other people and someone besides you might laugh at something and you don't know why it's funny. Hmm. And then suddenly there's a conversation that happens without words about what's happening on stage. So I always talk about the horizontal relationship of the audience meeting the vertical relationship with the performance. That's fascinating. The audience, unknowable mass of people, Mm -hmm. most of which you will never see again, especially in a place like Broadway, where it's like, this person is from Nova Scotia, and they are in town for a weekend and seeing as many shows as possible, and they may never make it back to New York again, but they are in that audience with someone who sees every show on Broadway every single night, sitting next to that person. So those lived experiences butting up against each other in that space will change what's on stage and vice versa. Hmm. I think we have to make things that require us to be in the same space in order for the thing we're watching to work. Hmm. You can make any play into a movie. It's possible. We've seen Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Streetcar Named Desire. You can make any play. Yeah. And musical for that matter. That's true. You can make them into movies. There is nothing like sitting in the audience and you're sitting in the front row and Nikki Crawford looks out and starts talking directly to you. That can't happen through a screen. Mm-hmm. The possibility of failure is not in the room when you're watching something on a screen because they have edited it. It is focused to be exactly what the makers want you to see. In theater, the set could fall down. Mm-hmm. Hopefully not. <laughs> and I've seen plays where yeah. there's nothing I love more than a train wreck on stage. I'm like, because it's... It's the best. It's a lie. Yeah. It, there's there's the possibility of it all going wrong. Someone could forget their line. Mm-hmm. And that's not why you go, but that potential hmm. of anything happening is why I come back. Yeah. And then I share that with people. I want to ask you about the end of mm-hmm. the play, which unfortunately, spoiler alert, I'm going to spoil a little bit. At the end of Hamlet, like everybody dies. It yeah. is... It's a bloodbath at the end of the original. Um, And in Fat Ham, it's not so much. There's one person who dies, and then there's this very moving moment where the rest of them sort of carry on. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that choice? 
I made a commitment a while back to only write plays that had happy endings, or at the very mm. least, endings that offered the audience space for hope. Huh. Why? I don't know. I got tired of writing things that ended sadly, which felt like what the sort of industry or what the culture was asking of me as a writer on some level. And I also like (laughs) when movies and plays end with a happy ending. I, you know, I think that black characters and, and black audiences deserve to see plays end with joy. I also wanted the play to like, transform because there's been this shift in the character's point of view Hmm. and that we would see that transformation literally in a material way on stage. Okay, you're the best. Thank you so much. We're going to do this one segment at the end. Let's do it. Okay, it's called The Last Time. Okay, I love it. When was the last time you sang a song to someone other than yourself? Years, like maybe a decade. Okay. (laughs) Okay. When was the last time you watched your Guilty Pleasure TV show and what is it? This morning. And it is The Real Housewives of literally any city, but currently uh, New Jersey. I'm getting caught up. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So God, I can't believe I said that. (laughs) Okay. When was the last time you ugly cried? Oh, gosh. It was during a movie. What was that movie that we watched? Oh, Triangle of Sadness, which is weird. Weird movie, yeah. To to cry, but it made me weirdly emotional. Like hmm. the sort of folly of the rich people and the desperation of everyone else just sort of made me sad. Things like that make me cry. So I don't know if I ugly cried, but I did cry. Okay. When is the last time you felt inspired? Yesterday. I was waiting to catch a train and I saw a man sweeping. He was like sweeping up trash and he looked kind of happy. It was just sort of like the look on his face and he he had earbuds in. So I think he was like listening to something that was sort of brightening his mood. And, you know, people were throwing trash as he was brushing up and I just started writing Hmm. about him on my phone because I just, I wanted to remember him. Hmm. Because it was just so beautiful, like, this juxtaposition of care and utter lack of care from this person, like, threw something for him to sweep up. Um, And I wrote choice words for that person in that moment. But, again, to metabolize (laughs) how I'm feeling, I write things. (laughs) Um, James, thank you so much for being here. I had a blast. Um, I'm so happy to be here. This was so interesting. I feel like I learned so much from you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You can find James online at jamesimes.com and keep an eye out for Fat Ham coming to a city near you. You can catch the play this fall in Memphis, Boston, D.C., and Philadelphia, and a bunch of other cities in 2024. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really love to hear from you, so send your thoughts or tips on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. 
Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Rebecca Seidel and Bob Mallory. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmith is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Mike Beck and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the executive producer of Audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts.